Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Good to see you all. It's been a while. feels like a while since I've seen some of you, just because I was gone for a while. And um, in fact, by the grace of God and generosity of my brother, my wife and I got to go on a once in a lifetime, probably for us, vacation. Um, And uh, we got to go to Italy for a couple of solid weeks. It was a lot of fun. I took a lot of pictures, but there's one place that as I was looking through my pictures, I realized there's one place we went that nobody took any pictures of. And I don't remember if it was strictly forbidden or if it just felt weird. Um, to take pictures there, but we didn't, and that place is the catacombs. So we went to visit the catacombs, and uh, for those who may not be familiar, the catacombs are a set of tunnels and caves that exist under actually several parts of Italy, but most notably, but not exclusively, under Rome, uh, under the city of Rome. And some of you have probably heard about how the Christians, when they were being persecuted, they would go into the catacombs and worship there, and it was a place to be safe and to hide. And this is true, that did happen, but it's actually not why they started using the catacombs, and it's not the primary purpose for the catacombs. What's interesting about the catacombs is that the catacombs are, first and foremost, they're just, uh, it's a place where they buried the important martyrs and popes of the early church. People in the early church that they wanted to honor and remember and, and, and recognize, they often buried in the catacombs, so underground. Now, there's actually a really interesting reason for this, and it leads to the next part of, of why I'm sharing this story tonight, is that what's interesting is part of the reason they did this is because typically what happened in Rome is people were buried in what's called the necropolis. And there would be various necropolis across the the, the country and the city. And necropolis, there were a few reasons Christians didn't want to bury uh, their people in the necropolis. For one thing, they objected to the whole idea of a necropolis. Necropolis is a Roman word which literally means city of the dead. And uh, they didn't want to bury their people in the city of the dead because the early church didn't feel like their people were dead. And in fact, what they did is the, um, the catacombs themselves is where they did bury them, but they didn't refer to the catacombs as a necropolis. In fact, they referred to it as a cemetery. This is why we use the word cemetery. But why, where did the word cemetery come from? Well, cemetery is actually a Greek word for what the Romans called a dormitorium. And dormitorium might sound familiar to you because that's where we get the word dormitory. So all three words, uh, Greek, uh, dormitorium in Roman, uh, dormitory in English, or cemetery in Greek, they all mean the same thing. They mean literally sleeping place. So the early Christians, rather than burying their people in the city of the dead, they buried their people in a dorm, a dormitory, a sleeping place. They were just resting. They weren't dead. They would be back. And, um, and so the Christians saw their burial grounds not as a city for the dead, but merely as a dormitory for the sleeping. And that's what the catacombs are primarily, is a place where they begin to bury their dead. Now, what's interesting about that is that as the early church met in homes, and as the temple was destroyed, and there were fewer opportunities for them to meet in synagogues, and as it became larger than just a Jewish sect, and we began to have Gentiles involved, there weren't yet, at this time, church buildings that were being built. They didn't have the large buildings that later were built all across Rome. Some amazing, amazing, beautiful church buildings across Italy. But that hadn't happened yet. They were still meeting mostly in homes. 
But they found that they wanted, it seemed natural to them, that they wanted to come together and they wanted to praise God together and they wanted to worship together. So to them, it may feel weird to us, but to them it felt very natural for them to gather together where their sleeping martyrs and leaders lay. And so they began to worship with hymns and songs and praising God in the catacombs near the, not the dead, but the sleeping. And, um, and so when the Romans did begin to persecute them, it made sense to just sort of increasingly move this worship into the catacombs. Um, it helped, it didn't hurt at all that the Romans in fact were afraid to enter the catacombs because they didn't think of it as a dormitory and superstition made them reluctant to travel into the city of the dead underground. But what I really, the reason I mention all this aside from the fact that it was an interesting factoid I learned while I was in Italy. The other reason I mention all this is because what's interesting though is their desire to gather for worship in any case. They were meeting in homes as we do with our focus groups, they were together and they were discipling each other and they were loving each other and discipleship was happening and just as it does in our groups. And it's even possible that just as there's opportunity in our groups, maybe they sang some songs and sang some hymns in their small groups. Now, all of our focus groups are free to do that, um, but I understand it feels a little awkward and unless you specifically have people who are comfortable like Lee and Ben and Lorian with leading worship, it, it can be a little awkward to do that. And even if you are, it can feel awkward because they're smaller and it's not maybe what you're used to. They may have been doing that in their homes. There's some indication they were. But even with that, this tradition started very early that it seemed to make sense to them to meet somewhere else, even if it be in the dormitorium, even if it be in the cemetery, that it made sense to them to meet, to gather together with people perhaps that they didn't see on a daily basis from their own neighborhoods and their own places of worship in the houses. It made sense to them to gather together and to sing and to praise God in spaces larger but not significantly larger than their homes. You can imagine the catacombs don't have spaces, you know, most of them are not this big. So just to help you all feel at ease, we're not planning. This is not all a prelude to letting you know that next week we'll be meeting in a cemetery. Um, we're not planning on moving, I, I, youth groups do this occasionally for very bizarre reasons, but we are not planning on meeting in a cemetery next week um, or any week at this moment uh, for our worship. But we do want to discuss sort of what the benefits of the tradition of gathering together to sing and worship is. Why, why even do it? Why gather together for, for, for singing and praising God and worshiping together? We emphasize, and indeed we will continue to do so, that discipleship doesn't happen here, it happens in the groups, it happens in those meeting places. But just like baptism, which we discussed last week, there are traditions that are part of the community but also help build community. And one of those is coming together in worship and in praise together specifically. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, tonight for you. We're grateful that you're in our midst. We're grateful for the freedom that we have that we don't have to hide Lord, underground, we're grateful for the, the, the space that we have uh, given to us by the generosity of Paragon Church. We are just grateful that uh, for Zoom and Facebook and all of this that allows us to come together for a time of, among other things, a time of worship, a time of singing and praising you. And we're grateful for it and, and pray even as we, as we go through kind of looking at why tonight that you would kind of renew us a little bit, give us a, a fresh sense of the import of what we do. And these things are prayed in your son's name. Amen. 
Actually, what I want to do to walk through this is uh, actually just take a look at Psalm 33. So there's a couple of reasons I want to use Psalm 33 to kind of show us why it's important. But one is that this is, this is a proof of how early and long this tradition of gathering for music and worship is because God felt it fitting to put an entire songbook, one of the longest books in the Bible, in fact, is a songbook, a collection of m musical worship. Now their music sounded different than ours. Um, they had harps and lyres instead of ukuleles and, and bass guitars. Um, all stringed instruments, though. <laughs> and, and so it may have sounded different, and, and uh, they, they don't, you know, they, they don't, uh, their poetry is different than ours. They don't rhyme sounds. They rhyme meaning. So it's not identical, but this idea of gathering is very consistent. And if you think about even the songs we sang tonight, the first one we sang, it's a call and response. This, this has been around since the, the Hebrews. Some of the Psalms are call and response. You know, somebody would sing one thing and then the other person would sing, what, what, what was it tonight? His love endures forever. Is that what the response was? Forever. So that's something that, again, there's a huge tradition. Thousands and thousands of years we have traditions of doing the same thing in churches. And so Psalm 33 is one of those songs. This is a song that they would have literally sung, that they would have gotten together and they would have sung. And the Psalms cover a, a range of sort of purposes and, and uh, meanings. And sometimes I, I have to chuckle a little bit. I know there's a lot of very strong opinions about what worship should look like in the church, um, particularly by pastors and worship leaders. Um, and a lot of times they talk about how every song we sing should only be focused on praising God and any other kind of hymn is just out of place. But that is apparently not what David the psalmist thought. Because in the collection of the songbook of the Psalms, we have a lot of praise of God, absolutely. We also have some Psalms which are absolutely just teaching Psalms. They're there to teach people things. We have some Psalms which are there as mnemonics to help people memorize other things and histories of Scripture. We have songs that are there for lament, to, to complain together. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to me how rarely this happens in our churches today. We don't sing laments. Uh, but this is something that fills up, uh, again, a whole different book, Lamentations, but also many of the Psalms are laments. Wrestling, doubts, questions, struggles, anger, there's all sorts of things that are in the Psalms that they sang corporately, engaged in together corporately. Um, so there's a huge range of what happens there. But Psalm 33 is one of those that not only was probably just a great song, a reminder of who God was, but it turns out as we go through it, it even speaks to why it is important and why it makes sense for us to even do this. And it starts with the exhortation for the community to sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. So all of you who are part of this community, here righteous is being used in a communal sense, you people of God. You gather together because you want to be right with God. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. What is one of the things that we do that is part of our rightness? We sing. We sing joyfully. It's fitting and it's appropriate and it's right to do it. I just want to mention very quickly and briefly because we talked a lot about it a couple weeks ago and it's not the main point tonight. But we talked a couple weeks ago about one of the benefits of community from a, a, a sociologist and psychologist who's really been exploring the benefits of community and specific religious community. And one of the things he points out is that when people do things in synchrony, when they get together and they recite a pledge, or even like at um, uh, AA meetings, they'll recite the, 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 
kind of like the creed of AA, whatever the philosophy of AA, they will cite it together. You know, the Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts. I was a Cub Scout many, many, many years ago. We would recite our Cub Scout pledge together. Um, some of us grew up with the Pledge of Allegiance. So there's, when you do things together, when you stand together and you recite or do something together, I mentioned two weeks ago, even things like at sporting events, you'll all do the same chants or you'll do the same motions or you'll do a wave or you'll clap. This has an effect, apparently a much more powerful effect than we often recognize, of making us feel like we belong to that community. There's something in us that when we engage in synchrony with other people, saying and doing the same things at the same moment, it adds to that feeling of belonging. Now, it might seem silly, but his research shows it's actually really powerful. And, it's, and he goes on, in fact, he tells us, in fact, he reminds us, he says, if you engage in actions like synchrony, like I was saying, just any actions, rather than saying prayers together or chanting together or do other motions together, it will make you feel closer to one another. But he goes on and he says, but we have data in my lab to show that, but the data also suggests that when you add elements of belief, the effects are stronger. So he's actually found out that religious communities doing synchrony are even stronger in their impact than other communities which do synchrony. Well, one of the things that's interesting is particularly in the evangelical world in the, in the, in the sort of the modern American church, we don't do a lot of liturgy. We don't do a lot of recitation together, but we sing our recitations. We sing our liturgy. And so there is this benefit. It, it is fitting for the upright to praise the Lord. And we know even just in, a, in one sense that it in fact is fitting. It is appropriate. It helps bind us together as a community. That's one reason it's a community tradition because you do it together. You can go sing these songs by yourself. Sometimes I do, but it's not the same as singing them with other people. But there's actually a lot more even in these first two verses. In fact, these first two verses are kind of the thesis for the entire psalm. He's going to go ahead and expand on these things. But he says a lot of things. He talks about singing joyfully. There's value in singing with joy. He talks about the fact that you should be singing to the Lord specifically, not just singing anything at all. He says that it's right, that it's fitting to do so. He says that, it's, that God is worthy of our praise. So there's a lot of things that we're going to see come up that he just capsules, encapsulates in these first two verses. So we're just going to kind of go through it, break it down a little bit. He says, praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. It, fascinating that here we have this thing that... I, you know, it's so important, it is important that our worship be singing to the Lord, that we be focused on God. But sometimes we forget that the exhortation in the psalm is that it's okay to be skillful and it's okay to be creative. This section here specifically says, play skillfully. It says, sing to him a new song, right? There's nothing wrong. There's nothing demeaning about having people who have ability and skill doing that. In fact, sort of using our creativity and our abilities with music to magnify God is part of what this psalm encourages us to do. It's really important to do. And there is something about music. We could come together and recite liturgies, and I think there would be benefit to that. And I think there, if we weren't singing, we would do more of that because I think it is important to stand in agreement and say things together. But I think also history has shown us there is something about music. And I understand not everybody is musical and not everybody enjoys music as much as I do. But nonetheless, there seems to be something significant about what music does. And just to show you the tradition of that, Martin Luther, for example, says this. He says, the devil, the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless troubles, flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. 
Music is a gift and a grace of God, not an invention of men. It drives out the devil and makes people cheerful. Then one forgets all wrath, impurity, and other devices. Martin Luther, obviously a great theologian in our traditions, you know, obviously reminded us of the importance of Scripture and the Word of God. That's what he hung everything on. He's very quick always to say the Word of God is sort of first, but he's equally quick to say over and over and over, this is just one of so many quotes, he's equally quick to say that next to the Word of God, next to theology itself, he feels like music is almost the most important thing. There's a reason that he wrote hymns that today sound to us sort of old and ancient and have words like bulwark that we don't know what that even means. And yet, songs like A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, he wrote to the tunes of very popular beer-drinking songs of the day. It's no joke. Mighty Fortress Is Our God is a beer-drinking tune. And the reason he did that was because he wanted it to be accessible to people. He wanted them to be able to sing these important theological words, not just because they couldn't recite them, but because to him, music had power to drive out the devil. Uh, Martin Luther goes on, he says, we can mention only one point which experience confirms, namely that next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. No greater commendation than this can be found, at least not by us. After all, the gift of language combined with the gift of song was only given to man to let him know that he should praise God with both word and music by proclaiming the word of God through music. Martin Luther goes so far as to say that's the reason music exists, <laughs> is to praise God. I think that's fair because you could argue that's the reason anything exists. He's being very specific here. Jonathan Edwards, a, a great revivalist, he says, the best, most beautiful, and most perfect way that we have expressing a sweet concord of mind to each other is by music. So the point he's making is just what we made before, that we can, and Jonathan Edwards would have done this been in his day and his time, we can stand and recite liturgy together, and that is a beautiful thing to do. But he points out that there's something accessible and there's something beautiful and there's something really powerful about doing that in music that gives us the ability. You know, you would all, let's be honest, you would all feel weird if we had spent the first 20 minutes of today reciting all of those songs with the repetitions of the choruses and the verses. You would just be like at a certain point, this is weird. And yet you did it. You did it because it was to song, it was to tune, and even repeating and reciting the same things over and over and over, we're just more comfortable doing that, not to mention that the rhythm and the structure in the song makes it easier for us to stay together. I um, grew up in a church where we did liturgy, and it used to drive my father nuts that what, for whatever reason our church was just awful at saying things together. They had like no rhythm, and, and it was partly the people who led the liturgy would they didn't know how to do it they would like go really fast and then really slow and then really fast and then really slow it was like they were doing a poetic reading so they were trying to put feeling into it but no one could guess what the feeling was that they were putting into it that they should put into it there are churches by the way that are very good at it <laughs> and if you do it a lot it works fine but music makes that simpler and more accessible for people who aren't used to that and that's really what jonathan edwards is saying it's a great way for us to come together and in agreement say, these are the things that we believe. These are the things that we want. These are the values that we hold. I think the thing about music is that, and I can only express from my own experience at this point, and again, I know we're all at different places on this, so there's not something wrong with you if you don't agree with what I'm about to say. That's okay. By the way, I did not pick some Martin Luther quotes 
which were very mean to people who aren't musical. I left those out. <laughs> he, he was amazing, actually. Okay. But I do think this. I think, and even if you're not, you know, my dad could not carry a tune at all. He just couldn't. I mean, he wasn't for lack of trying uh, and enthusiasm. He had all of that. But he just couldn't. He couldn't really carry a tune. But he had an appreciation of music. And not all music and maybe not, you know, it, whatever. If there's a scale of music that is highfalutin and high culture and low or whatever, you know, maybe he was on the low end. I don't know. But he, he appreciated music. And most people do seem to have an appreciation of music at some point somewhere along the line. And I think that music has this potential in us to unlock sort of emotions. It has the ability to unlock some emotional components. And so I think, again, in worship, part of the power of music and doing it together is it has that ability. And I want to be clear. There's no obligation in worship to feel anything at all. There's no obligation. It's not as if you should just stop singing if you don't feel it. Because if you do, we'll all stop singing at the wrong times. There will be days the worship team will just have to not lead you. Because they're not feeling it. And I know that from leading worship myself for 15 years. So there's no obligation to feel something, but there is opportunity. There's opportunity in ways that sometimes other things don't grab us. Emotions can grab us. There's, and, and the whole range. Music can make you feel angry or sad or desperate or joyful or relieved or, or, or adoring or loving. It can, just, it can lead you to these emotional mountaintops and these cathartic releases of sorrow. Music has that ability, and musical worship has that ability, too. Again, no obligation to make yourself feel things, but coming together and singing songs together can have that opportunity. It can produce that ability when we're open to it. Uh, sometimes it's really goofy. There are certain songs that, for whatever reason, they've gotten lodged in my psyche with a certain emotion, and any time we start to sing them, I start to get weepy, even on like parts of the song that are dumb that I don't even like. like this, this is a bad song, but it makes me cry. So therefore, I guess it's okay. You know, it's just, I'm not telling you what songs I think are bad and dumb. That's not why I'm here. <laughs> but I think that they, they have that power. There's, a, there's a, something about that that can make that happen. So that's why he says, play skillfully, create new songs. So there's something in that tradition of that. It's interesting that even Paul in the New Testament says, even just in our interactions with one another. He says, sing to one another songs and hymns of praise to God. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know exactly what Paul has in mind when he says that other than the corporate worship. And that may be all he has in mind. Or he might mean that in our interactions with one another, there should be a sort of, you know, lyrical joy to the way we speak. It should be sort of singable, even if it's not a song. I, I don't know. I'll let you wrestle with that. That's... Uh, Something he says in Ephesians and Colossians both. But it goes on in Psalm 33. So he starts, he says, it's fitting to sing to the joyfully. And then he says, so make music, be skillful, do it well, sing joyfully, you know, sing, um, uh, create new songs. He says, all that's appropriate. And then he says this, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves justice and righteousness, and the earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea in jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. 
this is one of those passages you read and for a moment you go into spiritual mode and you don't really think about what we just read. So I'm actually going to read it again. And I want you to actually pay attention to the words as I read them. Okay? I want you to think about them. I want you to sort of engage with the breadth and the depth and the eternal nature and the incredible what would be over the top if it were about any human being nature of these words. Okay? It says this, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. These are incredible reminders of how powerful God is and who he is in his character, aren't they? He loves righteousness. He loves justice. His, his love is unfailing. It's so big that if you're really paying attention to the words, it challenges you, right? Because I hear that, that line that says the earth is full of his unfailing love, and part of me goes, really? The earth is full of his unfailing love? I feel like there's a, a lot of failing love out there. I'm not saying that's God's failing love, but there's a lot of stuff out there. If the earth is full of his unfailing love, why is there all this room for all this other muck, right? I don't know the answer, but, but that's the point of that statement. It's to make you stop and think, huh, that changes the way I see the world, doesn't it? If the earth actually is full of his unfailing love, that changes things. When I, when I wrestle with the righteousness and justice of God, just to be reminded that he loves righteousness and justice, that, that changes the way I see the world. See, I think there's a couple of things. This is why it's so important that we gather together for worship, for these reminders. That's why it makes sense to come and sing. Think back to the worship songs we sang tonight. We said things there that we do not say to each other in normal conversation. Maybe we should, but we don't, right? We don't say to each other, his love endures forever, forever, forever. His love endures forever. Maybe we should. It wouldn't hurt us. But we don't. But we gather together and we sing them. And there's a couple of things we know about the world that's really important. The one is that the world exalts a lot of things and a lot of people. You can go find any number of heroes and and. And, and videos of think, beautiful things people have done. And I'm not opposed to any of that. Things and people sometimes are worthy of some praise. Accomplishments of note are worthy of being noted. But almost never does the world take the time to exalt the one who created all good things. It's not common in our culture to have somebody simply stand up and say, our God is a beautiful God. There's too many complicated reasons that that doesn't happen. Understanding that our culture is pluralistic and that when we say that, not everybody will agree. So the people who are celebrities and politicians have reason to be afraid to say it. But all that is just to say, we don't. We don't talk about the one who created all things. We don't talk about how amazing God is that he gathers all of the waters in jars. We don't talk about how amazing it is that God's very, just his breath is all that was needed to create the incredible universe. That isn't the way that we talk. We talk much more often in our world about how amazing we are. 
the things that we've accomplished scientifically. And are those things that are marvelous? Yes. But they don't come even close to the person who created all the rules of the universe but that we're using to do marvelous things. We're simply availing ourselves of the power and the creativity that he's given us. God deserves praise. But the reality is that if we don't gather together and do it as a church, the, the, the odds are you're not going to do it very often. I mean, that's just true. I, I'll just let you chew on this. Really, not, not to earn spiritual branding points, not to get defensive, because I'm not asking you to tell me. But just think, just on a practical level, how often do you actually get alone just to tell God how awesome he is? It would be great if we did. But do you do it once a week? If you do, good for you. But to gather together and do it as a group reminds us, not to feel guilty that we don't do it more often, but, but to remind us that God is that good, that he's worthy of that. The reality is that our gathering together gives us a safe place to publicly in agreement with other people who agree with us, take some time to let loose and say things about God that would be regarded as strange if we said them to our coworkers and our neighbors. Or they would be regarded as pushy, or they would be regarded as, you know, whatever, just mean, or whatever. They just would be not seen, but here it's safe to do so. Here we can talk in the most extreme ways about our God, and he deserves the most extreme ways that we can talk about him. We're used to moderating ourselves. I don't know about you, but I grew up, I've learned over the years of my life not to be too enthusiastic about anything. Because somebody out there will, will scorn you for being enthusiastic. Somebody out there will say, well, I, you're, you're kind of obsessed with that, aren't you? <laughs> you're kind of ridiculous about that, aren't you? Even in the church, you know, in my early years as a pastor, and there was a, a reasonable point to this, but I, in my early years as a pastor, I used to brag about my wife a lot from the pulpit. And then one day someone came up to me and said, you should stop doing it. It makes the rest of us feel bad about our wives. And I wanted to say, well, that's your problem. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was just interesting that even that was like, don't do that. Don't do that. And, and, it, and I think that's true. I think we've all felt that. We like moderate our enthusiasm. And worship together is a place where we can actually sing songs, where we can be as extreme as we need to be about God. And it's a safe place to do it. But the other thing is, not only that the world doesn't really exalt God, but the other thing is that the culture encourages one healthy side of a balance, but not the other at all. The, the world is fine if we want to talk about our honest questions and struggles and doubts, and we should do that. And the church should also be open to that. When we have a problem and we're like, well, I don't, I don't see God's faithfulness at this moment, it's interesting. You can talk to atheists, and they're happy to let you talk about your doubts. They don't feel weird and awkward when you do that. They're okay with that. They feel like that's honest and real and genuine. And it is. And that should be done. But where is the opportunity? Where is the opportunity to remind ourselves the other is true? See, the real beauty and glory of our lives and our struggle and our discipleship is that on the one hand, God wants us to say, and some of the Psalms absolutely encourage this, 
wants us to say, God, I don't see your faithfulness and justice in this moment. But God also wants us to say, God loves righteousness and justice. God is faithful. And no one in the world is going to ever encourage you to do that. In fact, they're going to see that as naive. They're going to see that as dishonest. You're allowed to wrestle and struggle, but if you're actually feeling a victory, that's not so cool. This, unfortunately, has gotten carried into our churches sometimes, too. I, we try to discourage this. We actually talk with our focus group leaders about this. And, and while we do spend a lot of time saying it, it is important that you let people wrestle with the genuine questions. Don't ever be threatened by genuine questions and doubts and fears. That is absolutely appropriate. But we also very much encourage our leaders, don't get into this place or this mindset where if someone comes in and you're like, okay, be honest and authentic with us. And they're like, I'm having a really good day and I'm just in love with God and he's awesome. Where you say, no, no, you have to be honest with us. Because that's also honest. But the world doesn't, it will never encourage that. Not because they're horrible and hideous, but it's not their job to do so. And they don't see things the way we do. And we need to remind ourselves over and over and over together. We need to have a safe place where we can gather and we can be ridiculous in our devotion to God. We need a safe place where we can gather together and say God loves righteousness and justice. And the word of his Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. We need to be able to say that without it becoming a political argument. We need to be able to, to come together and acknowledge these things that there's just not another place in the world to do it. Now, some of that absolutely should be happening in your groups. And it probably is, where you can encourage each other. But you don't have that opportunity in your groups to do it when you're not feeling it, which is part of the benefit. Coming together, standing together in agreement, saying God is righteous even when I don't know that he is. God loves justice even when I'm having a hard time seeing it. There's benefit to that. It's good to remember that God is bigger than any giant and any struggle we have. It's affirming to make such proclamations, not in the wilderness by yourself, but to make them surrounded by others in agreement. It reminds us we're not crazy or naive to count on the absolute victory of God. It's important to stand in agreement, if for no other reason than to practice even tentatively such agreement, even when we don't feel it. And I think sometimes it's important to do it, especially when we don't feel it. Occasionally I'll have somebody say, you know, I have a hard time singing the song that we sing in worship sometimes because I don't feel it. And I say, there's no obligation to feel it when you sing it. But the truth is you are designed by God in such a way that saying it is good for you, especially when you don't feel it. It reminds you. You articulate it, and you hear other people articulating it. And for a moment, you stand in a unity and agreement that other people don't have. In fact, we're going to try what my church growing up was very bad at. We're going to recite this verse. We're not going to sing it, because I don't know a song for this. I know a song for the first few verses of this, but we're not singing that either, so whatever. But only just because I didn't think of it until too late. But we're going to recite this. Yeah, we could probably sing it. But we're going to recite this verse together. I will try to, to sort of set a little rhythm that maybe we can kind of follow. But if we do it horribly, I don't care. I still think it will be good for us to do it somewhat together. Okay? Are you with me? And what I'm going to say is just don't be in a hurry. 
Because I will say that it drove my dad nuts, but honestly, as I stood next to him, part of his problem was he always wanted to get through it really fast. <laughs> so we're going to take our time. Here we go. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars, and he puts the deep into storehouses. And Zoomers, thank you so much for joining us. There was a Zoom lag, and I don't even care, because I just love that you joined us. That was great. It was so cool. But isn't that cool? We heard it, and it reminded us that, that even from a distance, that might have been Florida, I'm not sure, but even from a distance, they were with us, and we were agreeing together. Psalm 33 goes on. He says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. I love this because one of the things that happens as we gather together and we sing and we worship and we make these statements and we recite these things is it reminds us, and I just think this is so important. Somebody once said to me, you know, for people who don't go to church, they come into church and worship is just weird. And I said, you're right. And for a while I was like, maybe we need to make it less weird. And now I'm like, no, it's just weird. Because you're asking people to show devotion to a God they don't believe in. That's weird. You're asking people to sing things that are too, too lavish. Understandably, if we sad them, sing it to anyone else. I, I remember once Amy Grant, I don't remember which song it was, but Amy Grant, she sings both uh, love songs and praise songs, and I think she's full well within her rights to do so. I have no problem with that. But I remember one song she sang, which was just over the top about devotion and adoration for somebody. And somebody once, I think it was my wife, said, not my wife said this, but somebody said to my wife, that's so weird. She's so subserving it to this person she loves. And Anne was like, I actually think she's singing to God. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, that makes a difference. <laughs> but it's weird if you don't believe in that God, because it is weird. It is subservient, right? But I think it's important for us to remember it's not actually weird. It's right and it's fitting. And so the, the whole earth should fear the Lord. All the people of the world should revere him. What's weird is that they don't. What's weird is that we can go through our days and completely be ungrateful and unaware of everything that he's given us. That's what's weird. And when we get together to worship, it reminds us that we're not weird. In, we may be weird in other ways, but we're not weird about this. What's weird is how little time even we spend in this. What's weird is how deaf and blind the world is to these truths at all. Without these recognitions, without recognizing that, that the, all the people of the world should revere the Lord, without these recognitions, discipleship, even in our groups, could quickly become only about a sort of enlightened social and self-actualization. Where we do a great job of making the journey easy for each other and we all are better people, but we forget that this is what it's really about. If we understand ultimately the maturity is following Jesus' authority, if we understand ultimately the maturity is worshiping him as God, living as if he created us for a purpose, then it makes sense that we would take the time together to reinforce that. And one of the ways we do that is through worship. It's not the only way. You can do this in your groups. I hope you do. But one of the ways we do it is by standing together and singing things that you would feel silly yelling 
by yourself or any or anywhere in any other crowd. <laughs> For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. We're going to go on with this, but I just there's such a perspective in this, isn't there? That if we don't gather together to remember God's in control, then we become panicky, fearful, and controlling. We feel like we have to thwart the plans of the nations when they're bad. We feel like we have to foil the plans of the peoples when we don't like them. <laughs> but to remember that God is he's well in control. Again, if we don't remind ourselves of that, there's just so many people both in and out of the church who are ready to remind you that you, you have to fix things. You have to be in control. You have to get it right or it's all going to go downhill. But that's not what worship reminds us of. It goes on, he says this, The plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people chose, he chose for his inheritance. One of the most beautiful and important things about gathering together for worship is it reminds us whose people we are. It reminds us what our tribe actually is. See, everybody's tribal, and tribalism is causing a lot of problems in our country right now, but we all like and need to be part of a community. And the things about being part of God's people and God's tribe are just vastly different from most of the other tribes out there. But, but there is something, when you're in a community, or you're in a tribe, or you're in a group, or an organization, there is something about pledges, isn't there? We mentioned Boy Scouts or the Pledge of America that many of us went through. There's something about standing together and saying, I am part of this tribe. I am part of this community. I am part of this people. And I don't think God forbids us from being part of any other people or any other tribe. But it's vastly important we remember that our first and most important allegiance, miles above any other allegiance, is to this, not focused church, but to God's tribe, to the people of God. The tribalism of Christianity is a very different kind of tribe. First, our goal is not to winnow, but to welcome. So many tribes want to just shrink their tribe. I don't say it that way, but they do. Even political tribes, which need to have more people to have power, are constantly kicking people out of their tribe. It's a stupid way to win elections. That's my only political point for today. But our goal is not to winnow, but to welcome. Our goal is not to purify, but to magnify our tribe is open to everyone of any culture or creed or race or background or IQ or ability or gender or failure or victory or sin or clarity or confusion or sorrow or joy. Very few tribes are that inclusive. <laughs> Our community is all about following Jesus and nobody else. No other human being gets to lead our tribe. In our tribe, we're called to love and we're called to ignore all the other tribal boundaries as secondary at best. Our kingdom knows no boundaries in space or time. And the reality is we emulate this imperfectly for sure. We're bad at it. And we find it difficult to stay focused and we find it easy to confuse other tribal allegiances with our only true community. But by remembering what makes us us, that we are God's inheritance, that we are not a product of our own ideas, opinions, ethics, behaviors, or values. 
what makes us us, what makes us a tribe of God is not, is not our ideas, opinions, ethics, behaviors, or values. What makes us the people of God is that we're the people of God, <laughs> is that we belong to him. And that will change our ideas, opinions, ethics, behaviors, and values, but not the other way around. So we gather together to remember that our plans are nothing. We gather together to remember that God's plans and purposes will, not might, not should, but will live forever. We gather together to remember that our goal should be to remember who is our Lord and to live in gratitude for being saved by him. We are to be in awe that we are his inheritance. Do you, do you hear the weirdness of that verse? We are the people he chose for his inheritance. There's a lot of talk and should be, and it's also amazing in scripture about the inheritance we receive. This is amazing because it's saying that God gets an inheritance that he's delighted about and it's us. Being a people of God isn't about boasting and pride and bragging and closing the doors and winnowing out people who aren't as special as we are. Being the people of God is realizing, remembering, and being changed by the understanding that we are God's treasure. He sees us as the inheritance he gets for the life he gave. And he doesn't look upon that with regret or resentment. He looks upon that as his inheritance. That's what makes us who we are. A tribe that believes that that is what makes us special is a tribe that will function in humility and gratitude and everything else is just arrogance. So you think about other tribes and other circles and why do they gather together and why do they rally and why do they do synchrony and why do they do their pledges and why do they do their chants and why do they say and repeat the same thing? So often we gather in other circles to proclaim our faithfulness, to buttress our steadfastness, to boast of our ability to carry out the plans. We call people to be like us if they want to be special. But the church comes together not to make plans and not to boast, and not to bask in our commitments, but to bask in God's faithfulness and in gratitude that we're here with him. And worship helps us do that. Worship takes the attention off of us and directs it to God. And it reminds all of us as a community that that's who we are. That's why it's weird for people to come into a worship service who don't see themselves as part of God's people. Because why would you then bask in that? <laughs> From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling places, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. We gather together to focus on God, but as we focus on God, it is always, should always be a marvel to us and a sense of awe to recognize that the God of the universe, the most important creature ever for all time, is focused on you. That he's considering what you're doing. 
that he's looking at you. That's an incredible place that, that seen properly again leads us not to boast, but to humility and gratitude. He goes on and says, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. Humor me one more time. Recite this with me because I don't think we believe this. Ready? No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. And I want to say, no warrior escapes by his great strength. I mean, sometimes it seems like they do. <laughs> no king is saved by the size of his army? No. The reality is no. If they are saved... If they are delivered, it's because God did it. And he may have done it through their army, and he may have done it through their warrior, but he did it. And there are enough stories in the Old Testament, if we take them seriously, to prove this point, are there not? And guess what? There's stories in history like this too. Incredibly baffling stories of Israel surviving attacks by five nations all at once. Incredibly baffling stories of Ethiopia surviving attacks by four nations all at once when they never should have. But if we don't gather together to remind ourselves of this, how quickly do you think we'll forget this? Because the rest of the world hears this and thinks it's nonsense. But as the people of God who understand the faithfulness, the righteous, the justice, the unfailing love, as a people of God who understand that he considers us and looks at us and, he's, and that he created the universe by a word, as people who believe that we are the treasure of God and his inheritance, if we remind ourselves that, maybe we can also believe we do not have to be dependent upon the size of the army or the strength that we have because those are vain hopes for deliverance. We gather together not to affirm our power, not to rally our sense of importance, but to gain perspective on where our strength truly lies, to remember again our dependence, because I don't know about you, but I forget it all the time. By singing of such things together, we can let go of our egos. It's hard if I come to you and I say, I need you right now to declare how hopeless and futile your life is and your dependence on God. You're like, what the heck? But if I said, we're going to sing a song about it together, you'd be like, cool. As long as we're all doing it together, right? There is something about doing it together. By singing such things, we can let go of our egos, and we find it easier together to remember that we're all dependent together. We are all here, not by our own strength, but by the deliverance of God. There's things about God we cannot understand unless we are willing to stand together and recognize our dependence. I'm going to bring up a quote. I'm going to let you know that I, I agree with this with some qualifications. So if you read it and you're like, that's not always true, I agree with you. But it's a good quote nonetheless. David Jeremiah says, if you don't worship, you will never experience God. Now here's the thing. That's not true because God is gracious and sometimes we experience God when we're completely not thinking about him at all. <laughs> but I think there are certain aspects of God that perhaps you can't experience unless you're willing to subject yourself 
to the humility of worship. There are certain aspects of God that you can't see unless you experience that dependent humility. There are certain things about God you can't experience unless you come to him with gratitude and humility. It's true that if we don't worship, we'll never experience certain realities about God. I love there's a verse in Romans 12 which says that uh, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, then you will be able to test and approve the will of God. And so often in our lives, what we want to do is know what the will of God is before we surrender. But that verse seems to say, you will never understand the will of God unless you surrender first. And I think this is similar to worship. There are things about God you will never experience unless you're willing to stand in agreement with other people about things you're not sure you agree with yet. Sometimes people that I talk with do wrestle with seeing God's faithfulness and justice and righteousness. And, and I've done a lot of counseling in my life, and I've learned that counseling goes so far. But there is a point when, when if people will suddenly grab onto the idea that if they will throw themselves at the feet of God, the very thing they were afraid of will suddenly make sense to them as they experience the God of grace but you can't know any other way. Some of you have had this experience in worship. Some of you have been to retreats or worship moments or concerts or, or church services where you were on this sort of emotional mountaintop and you experienced something with everybody else. And then maybe you went back to other people and tried to explain to them what had happened. And they were either nice or not nice, but no matter what, they didn't get it. They were like, cool. But you could tell that there was no way to translate the experience you had had to them in words. Because sometimes it's just an experience. We want to be amazed and in awe at the power of God, but without first bending our knees and our hearts to that power, we very rarely will be at that place of awe. We worship together so that we can experience God together. But the eyes of the Lord on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Again, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. We come together to worship to remember that he is in our midst. His eyes are on us. Goes on and says, we wait in hope for the Lord. Waiting in scripture is something that scripture encourages maybe more than anything else. It is possible. I have not done a count and I will not. But it is entirely possible that this command to wait on the Lord in one form or another is the most prevalent command in Scripture. You certainly find it all over the place. This idea of simply waiting for the Lord. You can go all the way back to the book of Exodus where they're standing and the Red Sea is parting and the Pharaoh's running up behind them and God says to them, wait. I know the Pharaoh's just about to get you, but wait, and I will part the seas. We see so many times in Scripture where God simply says, just, just wait. Just wait. But waiting doesn't mean you give up or you're fatalistic. It means that you're looking. David describes waiting on the Lord as being a watchman on the watchtower scanning the horizon. So you're a watchman. Your job is to see the enemy approaching. You don't do that by simply sitting casually in the watchtower. You do it by scanning the horizon for any indication of the people who are coming. Sometimes people say to me, I just wish I could see God and hear from God. And I say, spend some time scanning the horizon and don't stop until you see him. 
And do you know what? It usually works. might take a long time. But you know what else I know? If you're doing that by yourself, it's a lot easier to get distracted. If you're the watchtower and you're the only guy there, it's a lot easier to fall asleep. But if you've got a buddy in the watchtower with you who can watch with you and can, can, can trade off with you now and then and can be the one to occasionally say, look, there it is, you missed it, it's right there. Then waiting on the Lord takes on a new shape. And that's what it is when we come together in worship. Together we come together to wait on God, to trust in Him, to yet another week say, we still believe you're in control. We still believe in your justice. We wait in hope for the Lord. We wait in hope for the Lord, says this psalm. Together. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfading love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. It's easier to wait together, to continue to scan the horizon, to continue to trust and hope, to believe in the hope and the help and the shield, and then to rejoice together as we see him rescue others. There have been times when I was dead to worship. I was so numb. I did not feel anything. And I stepped into the void and I sang with everybody else and it didn't help. And then I looked off to my left and I saw somebody else worshiping and they were so totally unaware of me. And they were unaware of anybody. And maybe the tears were streaming down their face or maybe they were beaming with delight and joy and maybe their hands were raised or maybe their head was bowed. But I could see, I could see that they were experiencing God and it reminded me that it happens. It reminded me to keep waiting. Martin Luther says one of the most important things that we as Christians need to do is preach the gospel to ourselves. Preach the gospel to ourselves. Perhaps more than anything, when we worship together, we're taking the time to remind ourselves and each other of the incredible gospel of grace which saves us. Bottom line is we gather together to worship God because it is right. And because if we don't do it with each other, we will quite simply stop doing it at all. Possibly. If we stop reminding each other and practicing to articulate the things that we want to believe, we may cease to even want that. If we forget which tribe we belong to, if we forget who is truly in control of the universe, we will forget the beauty and value of our dependence, and we will forget the unfailing love of God. And one of the bulwarks against that, now you can look it up, is coming together as a community to remember, to worship, to praise God. That's why this is a tradition that goes back to the earliest moments in Scripture and has kept going through the New Testament and the history of the church. And as we've gotten so many things wrong, and as we can argue so much about the best and worst ways to do this, the bottom line is God has preserved this tradition because we need it. We need it. And so Sunday nights for us will never become a replacement for focus groups. Sunday nights will never be the thing that the focus groups are there to support. 
but Sunday night will be a thing that is there to support you. It's there not as something you prop up by your attendance, but it's something that we have so that if you choose to attend, it may prop you up. Discipleship happens in many-to-many groups. But worship is a tradition that helps build our community and increase our faith. Go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.